You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I promised you that I was going to tell you what you're going to get in a show before the show happens. Because that way you can decide, hmm, do I want to pick another episode of the show or do I want to go for this one? In this episode, you're going to get information about biological age instead of chronological age and why that's the primary risk factor for all of the four killers you might have read about in my aging book. Things like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And I have to kind of come out here on the show and say that I no longer identify with my chronological age. I identify with my biological age. And I'm having a hard time finding biological age affirming care from my medical providers. So if you're having a similar problem, you are not alone. And when you fill out a form and they make you state your physical age, even though that physical age does not match your body the way you feel it, clearly that's ageism and it's probably grounds for a lawsuit. So if you have an age descriptor on your fields, clearly you're not honoring my biological age. So instead of it being something that's just in my head, is there math? Is there science? Is there a way to actually measure your biological age? And if there is, and your biological age doesn't match your perception of yourself, maybe you need to do some work on your hardware to make your body match the age that you wish to feel. Seems like a good strategy to me, and it's one I've seen um, work in other circumstances. So I think that's what I'm going to do here. So I identify as being 28% old. And you're going to learn how you might measure that sort of thing. And our expert on the show is quite the expert because we're going to talk about developments in aging science. You're going to learn in the episode how to estimate your own biological age and why you need to track your age more than you think you do. Our guest is Morgan Levine, who's a PhD and assistant professor of pathology and the director of the Laboratory for Aging and Living Systems at Yale, their school of medicine. And she's an expert in biological aging. So we're going to go deep. Morgan, thank you for being a guest on the show today. Thanks so much, Dave, for having me. Now, we both spoke at Peter Diamandis' big event, Abundance 360. Um, I talked on kind of the future of biohacking and about some of the things we're doing at Upgrade Labs. And you talked about epigenetic reprogramming, the potential for age reversal which is super exciting. And we have all these friends in common, but we didn't really have much of a chance to interact. So Mark Hyman and Ariana Huffington and Dale Bredesen, Walter Longo have all been on the show and they've all endorsed uh, your book. So this is, uh, this is a, a cool chance to share your work on how real anti-aging is with a lot of people who want to hear about this. So do you feel confident when you walk out on a stage and you say, no, actually we're reprogramming the aging of cells. Yeah, I mean, we're confident we can reverse, quote, reverse aging in cells in a dish. And there's even fairly good evidence, although I think, you know, we'll see how it plays out a little more, that you can do this in a mouse. I think the real challenge is, can we do it in a human, which is really what we care about. I don't, you know, we don't care about having young cells in our dish necessarily, or even mice. That's a fair point. Younger mice doesn't do a lot for us unless we can do the same thing. Now, one of the things that you uh, you talk about in your 
um, your book called True Age, which is a, a really good book. Um, you talk about extending your health span. Did you hear what I said about health span in my talk at Abundance 360? Yes. Yeah. Okay, let me repeat it for the audience. Guys, health span extension is for cowards. Guys, health span extension is for cowards. Okay. We all know that we're working on extending human life, but everyone is so afraid that they might not succeed right now that they're just afraid to freaking say it. And the reason I know this pattern is that I lived this early in my career. I studied artificial intelligence as a concentration in my undergrad, but the school said, oh no, we can't actually have an artificial intelligence program because it, it'll never be real, because we're afraid it won't happen. So we're going to call it decision support systems, and we're going to hide from the truth. So I recognize being an academic at Yale that it might be tenure affecting or grant affecting if you said, I'm going to make you freaking live longer, not just live better. So, am I onto something here? Like we're really extending human lifespan, but we're saying, oh, we're going to do health span because you might believe me. Well, I think, you know, one thing is that the only way to extend lifespan, you know, the way we want is to extend health span. But, you know, that's not to say yes. that we're going to do one without the other, right? So. Okay. Uh, I love that answer. So a side effect of extending your lifespan would be having a longer health span. And it's okay to sell it as longer health span, but I'm willing to just say, no, guys, I, I'm planning to live to at least 180 and be healthy the whole time. Yeah. Now, when I say that, okay, keep in mind, I'm, I identify as 28% of that number or whatever that's on my something or another is. Do you think I'm nuts when I mention a number of 180? I mean, I think as someone who relies a lot on data, there's no way to tell. So I think, you know, there's not good evidence that you can't live that long or good evidence that you can. And I think we do everything we can. And who knows what the future interventions are going to be and when they're going to come and how quickly they'll come. So I think we can have any aspiration we want, essentially. There you go. Um, that was a good, a good dodge. Um, did, did they teach Sorry. you that on the tech side or on the academic side? I'm kind of. Yeah, I mean, I think the both, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, here's the thought, Morgan. If some people can make it to 120, given all the tech of the last 120 years, like I'm pretty sure with another hundred years of your research and all of your colleagues, we ought to be able to just do 50 percent of our current best just to add that much on. Um, and so that's why I'm betting on 180. I could be totally wrong, but there's no evidence that you can't do it. And the people say you can't do it. They're the same people who said that we wouldn't have atomic bombs until the first ones blew up. And like, oh, uh, yeah, of course. No, I, I changed my mind. We obviously always could have had those. So I just feel like we're at that same stage in technology. Uh, and it's okay to think that I'm crazy. Now, question I, is- I want, I want to say, I don't think you're crazy. And I don't uh, think that you can't do it because there's- Again, no evidence either way. If, of course, if we have no progress in science, you can't do it, right? If, if we have all the tools we have today, probably not. Probably not. Again, I never like to say definite. Um, so if we put governments okay. in charge of innovation, we definitely okay. wouldn't make it. We'll okay, just yeah. put it that way. We can make that bet, yeah. 
Um, I haven't identified that as a risk in my future forecast there. I was looking at comets and topsoil erosion as the two things that would keep me from getting there. But yeah, um, complete destruction of innovation would also do it. Yeah. All right. How big is your gap between your biological and chronological ages? Uh, mine personally is not as big as I would like. I think it's about five years. So I guess I can um, be better. Okay. Five years is not bad. Which clock are you using for that? Uh, so that is, I, it's a PhenoAge clock that I developed, but the newer version of one. So it's a newer version of the epigenetic PhenoAge clock. I don't have my GrimAge clock. It's proprietary, apparently. All right. Can you say what an aging clock is? Because I'm pretty sure that unless people have heard uh, an earlier episode where I talked about Steve Horvath stuff, that's probably speaking Greek. So what is <laughs> a biological clock and how would you check your own? Yeah, so it comes back to exactly how you started the show, right? There's chronological age and there's essentially biological age. You could argue you might have more than one biological age. Um, but the idea is it's a more accurate estimate of actually how far your body has diverged or how much you have aged, not in chronological time. Um, one of the best ways to measure this is using epigenetics. So basically what we do is we look at the genome and there are certain sites across the genome, let's say a hundred, a few hundred thousand of them. And we just look for what percent of your cells have this chemical tag. And then using AI and machine learning and all these fancy algorithms, we can plug that in and predict out what epigenetic age you are. And these are considered epigenetic clocks that try and measure this. Okay. And you've identified your own clock by looking at specific markers. How would one go about I mean, granted, you've got some really good tech and some really good knowledge, and you know, PhDs and all that kind of stuff. But how would you go about figuring out how to do a clock like that? Just kind of give me the thinking that leads up to making the clock. How to develop it, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can tell you the difference between the original clocks so the, and, and the one that I just mentioned. So the first clocks, like the famous Horvath clock, um, which actually wasn't the first, but we all say it was the first, um, was trained to predict chronological age. So you have a data set where you have, let's say, a few or few thousand samples or tens of thousand samples. You know the chronological age of the person each of those samples came from. And you have hundreds of thousands of variables measured in each sample. You feed that into, you can use different machine learning techniques and you get out a predicted age. And then we can compare that to observed age and say, you know, is this more relevant for future health risks or whatever? Um, the difference between what we call the second generation clock, so the one I use to measure my biological age, is that we're not predicting chronological age, but we're predicting almost like you said, a percent or like a time till death, which to us is much more important than knowing someone's chronological age. So the newer versions are much better at predicting outcomes, much predictor, much better at predicting future lifespan and health span uh, than the original ones. So this is a major breakthrough just in terms of understanding aging because we used to say, well, there must be one thing we can measure. And it, this is something that we've had really since chemistry came about. We just make an assumption that it's one thing but it's not. And as humans, we might be able to, if you have a weird kind of semi 
autistic brain like mine, you might be able to figure out it's three or four things because you're good at pattern matching better than the average, uh, the average brain and probably worse at other things. So after that, we started like trying to make spreadsheets and databases and we could do a little bit more, but it was really about people doing the thinking. And there is no human on earth that I know of who could think their way to know, oh, these hundred thousand markers each set at these levels, that's actually the most predictive. And even you, if you could intuitively say, this animal looks young and maybe you're the aging clock master and you're a guru and you can sense someone's age with your you know, third eye, okay, maybe that's actually happening, right? I wouldn't discount that. But to make it repeatable and reliable and not subject to your own ego, man, that's tough. But that's what machine learning has done for us, which is a computer science breakthrough that enabled all this anti-aging stuff that happened. How much of your time do you spend like, either writing code or working with people who write code versus squirting stuff onto cell cultures? Uh, so my lab is like a 50-50 split. So I have, but I, my background is in data science. So I spend, I love coding. Um, that's where I feel comfortable. I'm a hermit that, you know, goes in my lab and just codes all day. And I, I do have people in my group who do this, but I always like to keep a project for myself and constantly being working on one of these things. So a lot okay. of my, now my day is a lot of meetings, but when I'm not in meetings, that's what I'm doing. As someone with a programming brain and I, my career was in big tech before I became a human hacker. Um, does it drain you to be in meetings all day long instead of writing code? Yeah, no, I mean, it takes a lot, right? <laughs> it's not a natural act yeah. if you're a data scientist. I get it. Yeah, I feel like if I'm coding, you know, five hours can go by and it will feel like seconds. And I'll be like, oh, I missed lunch today or yeah, something like that. You go into that flow state and yep. yeah, just like stuff happens in your brain. Okay, this wasn't something I was going to ask you, but I've got to ask you, what do you do to make yourself a better coder? Like, is it coffee? Is it like Eminem, like, like different coders, like there's music, there's, it's probably not Eminem, but it, it's probably something else, EDM more likely. But like, like what's your little unique, like, okay, I'm going to write code. Like here's, I need pizza and Jolt Cola. Like, I have no idea. What do you do? Uh, I mean, for me, I have, it might be natural. I have ADHD, so I can get in a hyper-focused state very <laughs> right. easily. So my husband makes fun of me all the time. I can sit down and it's just like, I lock in and people can have conversations with me. I have no idea they're happening. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge coffee person. So yeah, I can't not have coffee, but to me, that's baseline. And then, yeah, every, I don't use that to, that's what I need to operate in, in the world, but yeah. <laughs> you need coffee to operate in the world. I, I get it. The hyper-focus is an ADHD gift and curse, uh, depending. It's I, I certainly have been a coder for much of my life. I wouldn't call myself a worthy one anymore, but that ability to hyper-focus is, is fantastic. And just having an unusual brain, like find a fantastic coder who doesn't have ADHD, it kind of goes with the territory, right? Okay. Um, so you're like, you just, you need to do it because it makes your brain happy and you have some coffee and you're good to go. And it's just a natural skill. All right. Um, anti-aging and nootropics go together. Do you take nootropics? Uh, not, not so much. Cause yeah, I, I don't yet. I'm waiting for a little more data, um, on it, but Ooh. that Got I, it. Think, I think I'm risk averse is my problem. <laughs> so. 
So uh, that happens a lot, but like some of the nootropics have been around for 50 That's years true. and they're made by Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. Like, how do you know if you have enough evidence? Because we are talking about extending yeah. human lifespan for which there's no evidence. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm no, kind of exactly. curious how you set your risk thing. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, it, it maybe it's also a laziness thing. Like I do, I do just the, the basic, <laughs> the basic health behavior, exercise, eat. Certain, okay, yeah. so the, yeah. the basic stuff. All the right, so there's stuff. there's levels of performance you haven't unlocked yet. Now, exactly. Do you have the same? risk profile when it comes to anti-aging technologies. You're like, oh, we just found this new molecule. Like I might accidentally drop the syringe right into my vein. Has that ever come on? Has that ever happened? No, I'm probably more risk adverse than most people. I, I love, I'm happy if other people want to experiment and I will sit back and wait and see what happens. Uh, I totally, totally get it. Uh, There are both. Uh, I interviewed the guy from uh, Vanderbilt University who's studied nicotine since 1986 and shows pharmaceutically pure nicotine reverses Alzheimer's disease. And I'm like, okay, this has been like 30 something years. Like, so what's your favorite form? Do you like, do you smoke, which is bad for you? Or do you like use a patch? And he goes, no, I've never used nicotine in my entire life. I'm like, how do you do that? 30 years of studying a molecule that actually does. Anyway, it, so you're kind of more on that risk averse, but not on the, I can't do anti-aging on myself because I study anti-aging and then I'd be part of the experiment. That's not your worry. It's just like something like, oh wrong. no. Yeah. I still, I mean, I, I use the, the biomarker stuff and the clock stuff and yeah, so it's not, and actually I've done Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet and actually enrolled in one of his clinical trials. So yeah, I'm not totally, but I feel like I'm young enough that I have, Maybe in a decade, ask me again, and I'll have a totally different answer. But right now, I'm kind of coasting, I guess. Do you mind if I ask your chronological age? Because it actually yes. matters to talk about when to do interventions. Yeah, I'm 37. Okay, so you're right at the beginning of when you yeah. even see a, a noticeable difference. You'll see a performance difference if you do anti-aging even in your 20s because it makes your like your stuff work better. But until you kind of go from that 40 to 50 thing, that's where someone who takes care of themselves at 40 really looks different when they're 50. Um, okay, got it. So you're you're in a good place. And how often do you check your own clock? How often do you check your own clock? Um, I was trying to do it every month. Um but then I forget. Uh, so I would say a few times a year, but I'm not saying people need to do it that often, but I oh, have no. access to it. So it's easier. Yeah. For me. Like it's what you do kind of for fun and it's, it's your yeah. job. So that, that makes good sense. If I've had a bad month of less exercise or stuff, uh, even though I should still check it, I sometimes like, well, maybe I need another two weeks to get back on track before I check it again. Here's an interesting thing that would be worth all kinds of good press for Altos. Check your clock and then just have two glasses of wine every night for the next month and then check your clock again. And you'll be like, oh, <laughs> it really does age you. My N equals one, but it was an interesting headline worthy N because um, I, I, I'm certain that that would, that would change it uh, depending on how quickly what you're checking uh, changes over time. All right, average listener, if they're going to go do a blood test to check their biological age, you would do it annually? Yeah, I think annually. I think right now we don't really know how often people should do it because we don't have good studies that track people longitudinally. So I 
aside from like an N of one experiment, would have no idea to tell people how dynamic this is or how responsive it is. Um, so I would say, you know, similar to when you go to get lab tests with your annual physical, probably something like that as well. Okay. Talk to me about telomeres versus <laughs> these methylation-based aging yes. clocks. What's the difference? Yeah, people, a lot of people have heard of telomeres, love telomeres as an aging biomarker. I don't think telomeres are a good aging biomarker at all. And I think the data agrees with me. Um, so for me, a good aging biomarker has to have a few things. So first, you have to correlate with chronological age with some decent amount. Not perfect, because again, we we want to disassociate from our chronological age. But if you're tracking aging, you should change on a population level with age. Um, telomeres has a very weak to moderate correlation with chronological age. So not I got great. it. Um, and probably the more important thing is if you take kind of the difference between someone's biological age and chronological age, it should predict the things we care about, right? The actual things we're trying to prevent. So death, disease, telomeres is not great at that. Um, it's sometimes they find association, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's the reverse association. I would say the second generation clocks are the ones trained on this more like percentage of lifespan time to death are very like, System like they're always predictive when you have you know more than let's say ten people, but a decent sample size. If you have power, they're going to predict mortality and disease. Okay, so telomeres are to aging as cholesterol is to heart disease. Easy to measure, probably not very relevant. Yeah, that's my opinion. They might be relevant okay. on a biological level, but at least the way we measure them where it's like, I'm going to average all the telomere lengths in this entire sample and get one number. And that's meaningful, I think is not, you know, the variance matters to not just the mean and we, you know, that's all you're getting is a mean. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I have, I was so excited about telomeres a while ago when we first got testing and I'd see myself and others swing by 10 or 15 years over the course of two weeks. And then you realize, oh, blood telomeres change very frequently, but the telomeres in your brain, which you can't really measure without, you know, a punch biopsy or something, which you wouldn't do. <laughs> um, they're probably very different. So it turns out, you know, easier to measure, um, not that predictive. So I don't worry about my telomeres, but I do look at my methylation age and the numbers though, depending on which clock you run and, and guys to understand clocks, there's a set of data that comes like, like the actual what's going on the, in your tissues, but then what lens do you use to look at the data? Like, like, is this important or is this not important? And you multiply that times hundreds of thousands of times. So you can look at this data and say, well, this lens says you're five years younger than your actual age. This lens says you're 11 and a quarter years younger than your age. By the way, I have both of those. So I don't know if I'm five years younger or 11 and a quarter. I am just choosing to identify with the 11 and a quarter and to get age-affirming care. But like, okay, that's the, the glasses half full perspective. But when you have like five clocks and they're all like, you're doing better than your chronological age, then you're probably doing something right. And over time, those five clocks will probably merge because of AI and we'll have one agreed upon standard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're actually working on ways you can do ensemble learning and actually get the best measure from combining all the clocks that have been developed. Okay. I, I am really excited to do that. 
Um, there are other ways though that aren't so technical um, that we can use to estimate our age and things maybe people could even do at home. So what would be some common ways of knowing your age? Yeah, so actually another algorithm I developed that if you actually have just your basic lab tests from a recent physical, um, I think some people, I didn't do this, but people put my calculator up online. There's like Excel spreadsheets and you can just input all the different variables. And actually these tend to be as predictive of future risk um, as the epigenetic clocks. So they are useful. Um, and then if you don't even have that and you just have a pen and paper, there are kind of these deficit accumulation things that you can kind of take this, it's like a quiz from a teen magazine, it feels like, right? Like, oh, how many of these do you have? Or that kind of thing. You add up and get some score. Um, that's not super useful for people who are healthy, um, but it can be a first step, I guess, if you want to get a general idea. There's also the good old fashioned uh, look in the mirror. Yeah, and in the true. tech version of that, my friend Sergey Young's been working on that, is also an Abundance 360 member um, for a while, where there's an AI algorithm that look at your face and predict your age yep. based on that, which is pretty surprisingly accurate. Um, unless you know you're on an anti-aging program, in which case it might match you know, the age you identify as. Um, so we have physical features, we have levels of lab tests and things like that. Um, the most intriguing one for home use for me is actually grip strength. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> what do you think about grip strength as a marker of age? Like, like can you how how hard can you squeeze? Yeah, no, grip strength has actually been, especially in older populations, an amazing predictor of of kind of morbidity, mortality. Um, so another one that kind of falls in that line is like your timed walk. So, you know, there are all these kind of functional tests that people do. So it's like your walking speed, your grip strength, you can do like these chair sits or other things like that. But yeah, these, these actual functional ones are really great. And grip strength predicts a lot more than you would expect it to. Um, but yeah, you have to adjust for differences between males and females and that kind of stuff. Um, years ago, uh, a, a well-known person got really angry at me and said I was lying about the amount of exercise that I did. And, and finally, I was like, dude, we need to talk about this. And I'm like, what makes you think I'm lying? Because every single thing I've said is true. And he said, well, w when you shook my hand, your grip strength was too strong for someone who doesn't exercise as often as he does, which is like an hour and a half a day, kind of he's one of the exercise addicts like I used to be. And I just laughed at, and I'm like, yes, I test off the, off the chart for grip strength for an 18 year old, but that's because I do anti-aging, right? And he's like, oh, and, and we're actually good friends and uh, to this day and you know, talk about stuff all the time, but there was that big like, what the heck? And uh, the idea there is um, that is something you can train. And funny enough, there's a few researchers uh, more on like the bodybuilding and like the early biohacker generations who, when they traveled, would only bring grip strength trainers. Because like, well, if I do that, that's enough to keep me strong for two weeks. So they just have a little springy thing in their bag to, to grip stuff. So we don't really know. But for someone listening, yeah, a methylation clock uh, like Morgan's is, I would say, the gold standard today. But there's lots of stuff you're like, oh, I don't really like what's going on there. Uh, what do you think about brain voltage? Because we measure that at, at my 40 years of Zen um, company, and there's a decline in voltage and a decline in, in P300D, like the response time of the brain to the environment, that's statistically significant, and it, they slow down over age. Are those anything you've explored or things that you're paying attention to? 
Yeah, they aren't things I've explored, but yeah, I'd be really curious to see kind of the we prediction. Should, we should have a talk about that sometime. Yeah. I don't, ooh, I have age data and I, right now we have the largest database of high resolution brain scans of performers that, in academia. Okay, I'm going to have to run some numbers on that, but you got me all excited. So I, I think there's also a signal in the noise. And ultimately, my dream, and maybe you can help on this, is to be able to take all of these simple things like grip strength and like how quickly can you get off the floor and all the other stuff and the methylation clocks that you're working on and combine those into like a meta-aging score. Oh, says, absolutely. Like this, this is now what the cells predict. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is what the immune system predicts. This is what the way you show up in the world predicts. And we might actually get a number that's like so real that life insurance companies would beg to use it. Yeah, I will tell you the life insurance companies are are looking at methylation clocks already. But yeah, I think the key is can you combine all these different levels of data into a more kind of holistic view? Um, we are actually doing something, it's, it's still with methylation, but where we're actually not giving someone a single number. We're trying, we're developing a way to actually, just from a blood methylation sample, predict things about different organ systems in terms of, so you get like, an immune and inflammatory age, a kidney age, a liver age, a brain age, a musculoskeletal age. And so far it seems to be working quite well, but. Wow. That was actually my next question for you. Oh, sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, don't be sorry. It just means we're thinking about things similarly. Um, When people come in to an upgrade labs, there's kind of five big things they're looking for. There's like strength, there's cardiovascular, um, there's metabolic and energy levels. Uh, and then there's um, stress, right? Uh, and then there's brain. And like we're doing specific training for each of those. And for stress, it's like how quickly do you return to baseline? So I put the brain and the stress are both kind of neurological, but somewhat cardiovascular. And the other ones obviously are what they are. And those correlate to organ systems. And what I find is different people have different priorities, but different people um, are like, okay, you're the one, if you're a car, you're going to go out because, you know, one of your axles is going to break and you're going to go out because you need a valve job and you're going to go out because your radiator broke. Right. And we don't really know personally. So you think with the data that you're getting just from a blood or saliva that you'll be able to say, Dave, watch your liver. And you'll be able to say, Morgan, watch your cardiovascular, et cetera. That's the goal. So that's what we're Whoa. trying to do right now. We have, I think, 10 systems that we developed. And yeah, the idea is you can give people, um, Mike Snyder came up with this term, agiotypes. So like, which type of profile are you? Are you someone who has more like metabolic aging or someone who's more immune and brain aging? And then hypothetically in the future, can you actually make recommendations for interventions based on someone's profile? And that's when, you know, you need a lot, lot of data to start making those kinds of predictions, but I'm hoping that that is what's in our future, but we'll see. All right, the the we'll see. The standard more research is needed. Asterisk <laughs> yeah. on every paper. Sorry, ever I always have to say we'll see. Right? <laughs> Who knows? Now I'm a futurist. Yeah. So how many years would you guess, without <laughs> knowing, it's going to be before we start seeing these things commercially available? Uh, for those things, are more the interventions. <laughs> What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. 
Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. So how many years would you guess without <laughs> knowing it's going to be before we start seeing these things commercially available? Uh, for those things, are more the interventions. Uh, for just the, the different ages for different systems in the body based on the data. Oh, I'm going to say one year because there's already people who are interested in licensing them. So Okay, good deal. Yeah. So we're like a year away, guys. Yeah. And, and then it feels to me like the interventions, we already know what to do. Like the, the big stuff, like I've been writing about it for 10 years and learning it for almost 30 years from people three times my age. It, it's not that hard anymore. Like, gee, maybe you should sleep. Maybe you should meditate. Maybe you shouldn't eat shit, right? Like, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but dialing in the details, I don't think there's ever a time when you can say we're done because the more people do it, the more granular and accurate the recommendations will be. And so you could say, when are we going to start doing it? Well, we started doing it 2,000 years ago or whenever monks started sitting in caves and drinking different pine bark tea to see which one worked, right? So we're in the middle of this, this continuum. It's just getting more exponential because of AI. At least that's my read on it. You're nodding. Are you in agreement there? No, I totally agree. The more, yeah. the more data we have, the more powerful computing we have, the bet more accurate we're going to be. It's kind of, I mean, people know like, you know, any music, like streaming thing, it's going to get better at predicting what you're going to like. And the same is going to be for health, right? We're going to get better at predicting what you need or what, you know, is in your future as more data comes in and the algorithms just keep learning and getting better and better over time. Okay. I, uh, I love that. And, and that's one of the things about Abundance 360, where we both just spoke just in general, the future is, it's pretty fast and it's totally happening. You're saying, oh, it'll happen in a year. But if I had asked you that five years ago, what would you have said? Yeah, I don't, I would have said, I don't know, because it's my job, right? <laughs> it's just <laughs> academic. Don't you don't know. want to make a promise to anyone yeah. who's funding your research. Exactly. But if someone said, you have to guess, you know, there's a gun to your head, pick the most accurate number, or, you know, you get a million dollars if you're right, what would you have said? Yeah, I might have said, I don't know if we can do that. Um, it it would have yeah. felt almost impossible, right? Yeah. I, I would have said the same thing um, maybe 10 years ago. Um, and it's kind of my job to live in the future there. It's happening really fast. And now you're like, oh, in a year, that's only five years. And you could say only five years, what you're talking about. But if you're 20 right now listening to this, you know, at 25, if you're going to school, like, all right, you're done with most of your school probably, but you're just at the beginning of your career. And there's been this entire change where no one can really tell you what to do. And now all of a sudden you could go out and get a test that's going to tell you exactly where your weaknesses are, right? And then you can adjust what you do slightly. So you never have to deal with all the stuff old people deal with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and imagine in 30 years, right? Who, I mean, yeah. who knows? That's why I feel like I, I'm so bad at making the prediction of like where we'll be when I'm actually, you know, chronologically what we consider old because the, the things come so fast and they're so unpredictable, some of these discoveries that it's, I have no idea. There's no way to even know what's going to be in 10 years from now. When you put all of this together, what percentage of aging do you think is genetic versus epigenetic or caused by the environment? Yeah, I think very little is genetic unless you're one of these, like you won the genetic lottery, which to me is probably just as likely as winning the real lottery. So I would say most of us, um, mere mortals cannot depend on our genes or, you know, same thing with our genes serving us, uh, being a disservice to us. I think the majority is environmental. Um, that's not to say that aging itself is purely environmental. Um, but the rate at which this happens, I think we have a lot of control over to some degree. Just, sorry. Always the, it, it, it's all right. The more you spend time in, in biotech, yeah. you know, and less in, in academia, I'm, I'm guessing that that's going to go down in strength of amplitude, but always be yeah. present because you're a real scientist. And I actually value that. So even though I might tease you about it. You tease away. Um, what, when I, I think about that, that customized routine, uh, here's what's going to work for you. Um, do you ever worry about Gattaca, about, you know, enforced, you know, government digital currencies? You can only use this coin on kale because an algorithm said you should eat kale even though it's bad for you. Like, do you ever, like, have a nightmare about that? I mean, I yeah, I think these are things we need to think about. And as technology develops, we need to not just think about the good ways that it's going to be used, but the ways that it can be misused or actually end up hurting us in some ways. And I mean, even with the the clocks, I I worry to some degree that, you know, they could be used in terms of medical insurance to deny people coverage. And, you know, there are there are you can think of different ways that things might be used in a way that they weren't originally intended to be. And yeah, we need to consider and discuss. Same thing like CRISPR. It's like CRISPR is an amazing technology for gene editing, but you could imagine ways it could be misused. So <laughs> it. It doesn't take much. It's a problem. I, I look back in the very early days of the internet. You know, I got my first email in 1992, and most people didn't know what the internet was. There was no there was no browser. You could you could use it hadn't been invented yet, and everything could be anonymous if you wanted it to be. And it was like this whole amazing world. And I helped to to build you know, meaningful parts of different bits of infrastructure. And the idea was always this, wow, we're going to have so much freedom and all. And I look over the course of 30 years and it turns out it's actually very easy to use it as a tool that's the opposite of freedom. And I look at all this hopefulness around anti-aging and all the amazing changes that are happening. I'm like, how are the bad people uh, going to try to use this against us? And I, I can think of a lot of scenarios as a computer hacker. What is the worst way that you can imagine anti-aging tech being used against people? Like, go dark for me for just a minute. Oh, man. Um, oh, I don't even know. I have to really think about that. I mean, maybe you have more, maybe you have better ideas, but yeah. Uh, 
I wasn't a good enough sci-fi screenwriter, so I don't know if I can come up for uh, you, you haven't read enough Bruce Sterling and Neil Stevenson, yeah. apparently. All right. So it, it's not landing for you. And I mean, unless it's like, I mean, it, if there's hypothetically immortality, right, then, yep. you know, are we going to like everyone, certain people get to live and other people don't, or that we have to decide on like your death birth like day right so or, it's like logan's run versus yeah. the gerontocracy uh with whatever or only that. certain people can reproduce because you have to keep that into check and that you have like i i don't know that's about all i can come up with the, the thing is this is all likely to happen in our lifetimes because our lifetimes are getting longer and tech is moving so blindingly fast like breakthroughs are happening like every two weeks somewhere else on the planet uh, and you can't even keep track of all the breakthroughs that are happening without AI. Like it, it's that we're there as a species. If we just don't destroy ourselves, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a big if. Okay. Yeah, it is a big if right now. Do you believe that there is actually a limit for human lifespan? Um, I believe there's a limit to human lifespan in the body configuration that humans currently have if we can figure out a way to overcome that then perhaps not i mean there's not a limit to i always like to talk about you know reproduction you're taking the same material right and making an entirely new organism and it, you know you keep going on for generations and generations so the material itself can but you know whether you can maintain I think the consciousness and the memories and that stuff is going to be the key, right? You can replace everything else, but you need continuation of. Isn't your body continuously replaced all the time anyway? Like, like yeah, right now your is. liver is replacing itself. It just takes it a few years to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like the, the pieces keep going on. Right. And even, you know, generations are replaced by the material that came from the generation before them. Um, but you need, for talking about this on a, an individual level, you need somehow the brain, memory, consciousness, somehow to maintain that with this kind of turnover of the rest of your organic matter. Um, how much of your work involves like turning on repair mechanisms versus measuring the rate of, uh, of change? Um, yeah, I mean, we're doing, if we're talking reprogramming, which is not per se, turning on repair, except, I mean... Well, you can program to repair of, or program yeah. to kill, right? I mean, like, that's exactly. Mother Nature, kind of the two sides. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, it is... So we are we are interested both in what pushes aging and to measure that, but also what can slow it or reverse it or repair the damage. And we're looking at it both from prevention. So can you prevent something by slowing it or a, like a repair or rejuvenation or reprogramming thing. So yeah, we're doing, we're doing a little bit of that in the lab. What are the top three most promising ways of telling the brain or other parts of the body to improve themselves? I don't mean just lifestyle, but like the top three, like techie, cool things like laser all, or something that know. exist or that will hopefully that, that are going it. to exist in your opinion, not oh, scientific measurement. I mean, I think I think the epigenetic reprogramming is potentially promising if we can figure out. I mean, I think we can find better factors than the ones that are currently used for this. Um, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, regression towards mean. There's got to be better factors. Um, but then, yeah, the idea too is, you know, for brain, where do you tar 
what if you target peripheral and you don't even have to target the brain and you still get a improvement in brain. Um, so I think there are promising things on the horizon. Perhaps. So that was one epigenetic reprogramming. Oh man. So tell I me need, the, I need tell three. Me the, yeah. Are the three technologies in behind epigenetic reprogramming? Like, yeah. like what's going to be the things most likely to, it could be peptides. It could be, uh, I don't know, radioactive spider bites, you, you pick, but you, you, yeah. you and I both see all kinds of tech, right? You yeah. probably see more than I do or, or deeper than I do. But in your mind, you're like, wow, the ones you're most hopeful about, right? And hope is yeah. not a scientific thing. It's like, that one kind of has legs. I hope someone does that, but it maybe it's not going to be you. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think is really cool and maybe is similar is this idea of parabiosis. So this is where they Ooh. do like blood exchange. People call it like the vampire therapy. Um, but people have actually even isolated specific factors from blood. And I mean, at least in mice shown that it has improvements in terms of cognitive functioning and memory and performance and that kind of stuff. So I think that is another potentially cool one. I have a college student under my bed and we just do the parabiosis Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone needs a blood boy, right? That's I, why that's why we have kids. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I'm I, um, I wrote about um, parabiosis and, and like where I am now on that is that it's likely um, plasma exchange is, is particularly important. Not even getting the young factors, just getting rid of your own dirty Absolutely. plasma. Absolutely. So yeah. I do like ozone, uh, EBO2, and I'll do um, uh, ozone dialysis, like where you basically mm -hmm. filter out all the crap from your plasma and plasma replacement. And then the factors that seem to be most important are probably some peptides, including GHK, that are mm -hmm. present at higher levels in younger blood. So I may or may not have taken an insulin needle and injected GHK right there in my arm when I wasn't looking. <laughs> Um, but I'm not recommending anyone do that because, well, you know, you want to look at dosage and safety and labs and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like a good idea for an anti-aging person, you know. Um, but, <laughs> but we need more research there. I, I still want to yes. hear from you. Yeah, exactly. But okay. I totally agree with you that I actually think it's the removal of factors that are accumulating with aging. And actually, so this is something my husband and I collaborate on. So he studies, like, changes in protein conformation and lipid protein interactions with aging. And so... We, you know, hypothetically, you can identify some of these promiscuous or problematic things that accumulate in plasma or other tissues uh, with aging. And yeah, if you just filter out kind of like the environment, right? Like if yeah. you clean the environment, Earth, everything does better and as it gets polluted and gross and the ecosystem fails. I have a friend who spends a lot of time in the, the mining industry and went in and did his first like heavy duty dialysis, not because his kidneys are failing, but just to clean his plasma. And the the filtrate was black. And mm. I've never even heard of that before, like, like a full on black color. Like I have no idea what was in his blood, but it probably needed to not be there for him to live a long time. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so have you gone out and done a plasma exchange thing? Or you're, you're like, I'm 37, my brain rocks, I'm happy, I'm just gonna do this later. Yeah, I, I think I'm probably in that, that camp. But you're for in now. that. Okay. You guys must have the best conversations over dinner about aging and things like that. Do you have kids? Yeah, we have a six-year-old daughter who does not approve of our, our you know, work conversations. <laughs> and she would rather talk about, oh, I don't know. 
whatever. The game they made up on the playground. I'm pretty sure that uh, Barney could talk about parabiosis. We we need to have this happen and just like, here's some IV tubing. Could you hook your old stuffies up to your young stuffies and just get her used to it early? Actually, no. So we talk about, she has like a rat toy and we talk about, can you make, you know, make the, once a rat gets old, can we make it young again? We talk, we do talk about this stuff and she's very into that. Can you figure out how not to get old and die things? So she's amazing. Yeah. She doesn't want the details, but she's very in on like, how can you figure this out? The immortal thing is interesting because we have, you know, so many legends and myths. This old TV show called The Highlander with the movies. I used to love that one. But of course, it came at a cost. And, you know, all of the the tales of immortality uh, from myth involve like an unforeseen side effect. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably have some unforeseen side effects, but we're right on the cusp, maybe not of immortality where you cannot be killed, but where like assuming, oh, yeah. you know, a bus doesn't land on you, um, you're probably pretty resilient and that we can, you know, tell your body to regrow parts. How much of your vision of the world is we told the body to regrow itself versus we just made a robot arm with a missile launcher and we just bolted that on? Yeah, I, I mean... I think people would be more game for the first one. Yeah. I mean, at least for now. We, uh, so I think if we can, you know, figure out ways to regenerate or rejuvenate parts of our body that look like how people expect human bodies to look, um, that might be the first way to go. But I mean, it's hard, yeah, it's hard to say. Who knows if Terminator is going yeah, right. to be in our future. Um, As a computer security professional, I don't think I want retinal implants because (laughs) someone's going to write malware and every time I look at anything, it's going to try and hit me with crypto spam, uh, just like Instagram. (laughs) By the way, Instagram can find certain words in the English language that have to do with, you know, famous viruses and ban those, but they can't stop crypto spammers. The same thing would happen on your contact lenses until you poked your eyes out, right? So I'm a little nervous about hardware upgrades that I don't have the source code for. Yeah, you um, need open source. Oh, yeah. well, but then, yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like by open law, just you. Like, like you should always get the source code with an implant or it shouldn't be legal to sell the implants, but we'll see if that ever get mixed into the constitution. Probably but maybe not. you need like some training too, right? Because yeah. That would be good. Yeah. Of course, and if source code's released, then hackers will use it to find That's what I whole. mean. Like, it has to just be available to you and not open to... <laughs> I don't want people re- like, reprogramming like, me. Not. There's entire ethics departments that haven't been made yet to study what we're talking oh, yeah. about. Like, the, the future's got so many interesting things to do. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about less interesting stuff for a minute, though. Caloric <laughs> restriction. Yeah. I have a few friends who have like, I've for 30 years, I've been cold and, and very thin, but I swear I'm going <laughs> to live longer. And you just get used to the gnawing hunger. And I'm like, I don't think I want to live longer like that. But talk to me about the calorie trial. What is it? What happened? Yeah, so this is the first clinical trial of caloric restriction in humans. Um, it's happening at multiple different sites. And I think they enrolled People, I forget how far in they are. They're a few years in, um, so we don't know if people are living longer, but they have used some of these biological age measures, at least the ones based on the clinical lab tests. And so far, the evidence looks good. Um, I will say the caloric restriction there 
actually getting people to adhere to is not as extreme as probably people in practice, you know, the, the real zealots of caloric restriction. Um, I think it's only like a 12% reduction. So uh, that, that's pretty small. The the guys yeah. that I'm talking about um, specifically are doing at least 30% below yeah. their basal metabolic rate. Exactly. So that's yeah, called starvation is, to me. But Yeah, me too. I, I don't want to spend the, you know, my entire life doing that. But yeah, the 12%, I think is hypothetically doable for a lot of people. You know, there are a lot of people in, in this country that can't even adhere to like a, you know, basal metabolic rate diet, but yeah, it, it's not so extreme probably. The, the one thing that always gets me about caloric restriction is I think there's data on mice that show that if you return them to a normal diet, they almost lose almost all the benefits. So the thing that always gets me is, well, can I do this forever? Or, you know, I'm going to give up in, you know, 40 years and lose all benefit of eating minimally for however long. That's the problem with a lot of anti-aging and biohacking research is they never consider friction, which is like, how much work is it to do it every day? Yeah. Right. And if there's a lot of friction, like you're not going to, you're not going to get in a cold tub if you have to drive to the place and buy ice and then drive home and then fill the tub. Like you're just not going to do it versus if you have, you flip a switch and the water's cold and you jump in and you're done in three minutes and you just don't care. Right. Yeah. Same activity. And I feel like a lot of what we're thinking of there is, you know, do I have to carefully measure my food for the rest of my life? Um, Cause you're not going to adhere to it unless you're a zealot and that that's just not useful for the average, you know, actually way more than average number of people yeah. who are just obese. Yeah. Um, but this, this was kind of interesting because I I'm highly skeptical of, long-term calorie restriction as being viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's lots of studies that show people kind of go crazy over long periods on things like that. It's really yeah. bad, like torture level crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, but they were finding an 87.5% lower rate of aging from caloric restriction of about 12%. And so in two years, they're only aging three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I could get in on that. But the easiest way to do it is just don't eat one day a week. And there's your 12.5%, right? So a 24-hour yeah. fast once a week would achieve the goals of this, right? I think that's what we're hoping, right? That you can have these fasting regimens that are much easier. Well, at least personally, I can I can say they'd be easier for me to adhere to. I think a lot of people would agree. I, I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, that, And I think there was some data recently that said people didn't adhere. That was a tiny clinical tiny study. So I don't know if I believe that, but yeah, if we could get the same benefit from doing different fasting regimens that, you know, you only need willpower for, you know, X number of hours. I think that would be easier. Um, we still don't know if they fully, or first off, we still don't know how big an effect caloric restriction has, let alone fasting. But I think, you know, that data is probably not super far off from us getting and, some good And we insight. can say it's generally beneficial on lots of factors that we know are mm-hmm. good for health span. Like people yeah. tend to not be diabetic when they're doing intermittent fasting. Yeah. So we're going to give it a little check mark is probably good. And it's yeah. good enough to start taking action as more data comes in. Yeah. Right? And I think people are like, oh, maybe it's just because they're not over consuming. But it's like, okay, that's still good, right? If you keep people from over consuming, even if it's not something specific about that, then I think it's still a benefit, right? Well, I I don't even know that the, the over-consuming myth is 
that real because I ate 4,500 calories a day for more than a year and lost weight. And I wasn't exercising heavily. I was starting a company and working full-time as a VP and a young dad. Um, mm-hmm. But that shouldn't be possible. But it turns yeah. out you know, the, the type of calories and the timing is really important. Mm-hmm. And that leads to something else because I've written in my anti-aging book about protein restriction and mTOR, recognizing that sugar raises mTOR, this pro-growth but also pro-inflammation molecule for listeners. Um, so a high protein diet above what your body needs as building blocks is not advisable because fermented protein is bad for you. But a low protein diet below that level is also very bad for you from aging. Mm-hmm. So you're like low to moderate protein seems good, but there's a bunch of people say more protein, more muscle, more anti-aging. What's your view of that as an aging scientist? Like what, what's the right protein amount? Yeah, I actually think I have a similar view as you do on that. Actually, I have... I did a paper with Walter Longo on protein um, and aging and mortality risk and stuff like that. Um, So I totally agree. I think it's this balancing act, right? You don't want too much IGF-1, which like activates this whole pathway with the mTOR is a part of, but you also don't want so little that you're going to have sarcopenia and muscle wasting and stuff. So it is really this sweet spot probably that you need to find. Um, I do think, our society is a little too obsessed with protein. And yeah. I think I, I think those suggested amount is probably beyond what science says we should be getting, at least for aging. I mean, fine if, you know, for some people say it's really great for weight loss or muscle mass, or, but for aging, you should probably not be eating as much protein as some people are recommending. Um, so I probably eat a lower protein diet than definitely than the average person, but then a lot of people. Um, but I don't really, really restrict. It's not like I'm getting no protein. Um, and I take B vitamin stuff to hopefully compensate. So then I've, I've got to ask you about <laughs> yeah. this part of it. You look at hundreds of thousands of markers of methylation, right? And you mm-hmm. treat each one discreetly. Uh, yeah. When they go okay. into the algorithm. So Well, it wouldn't be valid to say, look, I just looked at your methylation in total, treating them all the same and gave you a score. Yet you're giving yourself a protein score without acknowledging the composition of the proteins you eat. Oh, no, absolutely. That's an important variable. I talked to Walter about this and said like, oh, we should do more on like, because at first it was a pro- overall protein percentage, yeah, right? And it's like a meaningless number. Exactly. It's, you know, how much is from specific amino acids or different sources. I think it's critical. I think the problem is, again, it all comes back to the data that we use to study nutrition is typically crap. Data. It's garbage <laughs> like, data. So yeah, like so, use the inhane study, anything based exactly. on inhane. It's named after underwear. Like it's not good data. You can like, anyway. (laughs) Nutritional underwear. I love (laughs) Yeah, no, and that's like, that's a problem. That's what we, like most people have for data to study this. And do we really believe that people are, it's all self-reported. Do we believe that they didn't like put in that they ate five Oreos after dinner or, you know? Yeah, I mean, nutrition epidemiology is, not great um, at all, but you have to take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Okay. 
If you're hearing that noise behind me, there's a male woodpecker that's really horny. And he's figured out that if he pecks on my metal roof, his his peck is louder than all of his friends, which attracts the female woodpeckers. I don't know how to handle that in my studio because I don't like shooting woodpeckers. So good I thing evolution. Good thing evolution's not quick. Otherwise, you'll all of a sudden have like 50 of them, right? Because <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll reproduce more. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so sorry for the background jackhammer. It's a bird. Um, what do you think about the carnivore diet, like the ultimate high protein diet? Yeah, I don't adhere to that. Um, I will say I eat lots of plants. <laughs> it's kind of my yeah. diet. So the anti-carnivore diet. Okay. But. So then what about uh, the plant paradox? Uh, Dr. Gundry is a very well-respected doctor and, and a friend, and he kind of says a lot of plants want to kill you. And I kind of yeah. agree with them. Do you worry about plant toxins? Uh, except there is some interesting data to su- suggest it might be like a hormetic thing that actually some of your benefits from eating plants could be your like this little hormetic stress that comes from this. But yeah, I think these are things that we need to consider. I think, again, it's not a causal link, but if you look, people who eat more plants tend to do better. I mean, again, you can't look at one variable, right? It's, you know, in the grand scheme of your whole holistic diet, but yeah. I, uh, I, I hear you on that. It's a pretty interesting time because we can kind of decompose any food and say, here's the pros and here's the cons. And then you go, oh, but wait a minute. Can we compare that to your genetics and your epigenetic state? And it turns out it's probably going to need to be modified and also your activity. I can tell you after I had uh, surgery on a bone in my foot, I ate an 18 ounce grass fed, grass finished ribeye every day for five days and I couldn't get enough. And then the day after that, I'm like, okay, I've had enough of the proteins and aminos my body needed for healing and I was done and I just ate normal. Right. So was I on a dangerous high protein diet? Probably not. Right. So if you lift it heavy, it, that also is a variable. So I, I just think there's so much we don't know. And I'm hopeful that we're going to know. And the most important thing is what you're working on, which is having a way of measuring your clock. So all of the stuff you do, are you doing enough of it right enough of the time that your age is younger? And then if the age is not where you want it to be, like, well, let me play with things and check again in a year. Right. And that's here you go from lifting to yoga or vice versa or whatever you decide you're going to sleep. And then you go, oh, it seems like that worked. And we know it could be more perfect, but it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better. But without what you're doing, we don't know. And we just go, am Mm -hmm. I healthy? Which there also isn't a measure for. Or is there? Is there a measure for healthy? No. And and we talk about this all the time, right? Because we want to define healthy states. Like, what is a healthy state, right? How do you even quantify a healthy state? And yeah, I think it's exactly what you were saying. Can we take the guesswork out of this, right? Because I say, oh, I'm eating this because I think in 50, 60, hopefully longer years, this will pay off. But if you have no way, like you want to know now, right? You're putting in all this time and effort into all the health. I mean, not everyone puts in time and effort to their health behaviors, but a lot of people do. And you want to know, am I doing the right thing or should I be spending my time and energy on something else? And Yes, the measures we have right now are not perfect. They will continue to get better, but they're they're better than guessing. So it's still going to give you more information than you would have had if you were not doing something like that. I I like that perspective. And I 
there's so much more from your book that we could go through, um, and it would probably be like a three-hour conversation. Um, and I want listeners to, to know, um, the book is called True Age, Cutting Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. And it's worth, it's worth checking out because we know now, uh, and I think we've known for probably five years, but we absolutely know that there are some things that in reliable research extend mammal lifespan ridiculous amounts. And we also know we're mammals. So if it's possible to do it in any mammal, it's probably possible for us. And there's likely going to be connections between those. We're not going to know if it works for you or me because it's like having a, a life-size map of the country. It's useless <laughs> because you'd have to unroll it and walk there to see the point. So when it comes to aging, we're always going to use computer models or animal models or cell cultures. And being able to measure it in cell cultures is what Morgan's focusing on quite a bit. But we know that you can do it. This is no longer, gee, I wonder if man will be able to fly someday. And you're like, no, no, they're doing it, right? And we don't know where it's going to take us. So we're at that stage in aging. And if you read True Age, um, you'll, you'll be inspired uh, to understand what's going on. I agree with her. You probably don't want too much protein. Probably don't want too little protein either because I've got lots of studies. And also all proteins are not the same, right? And then there's fasting and there's sleep and there's movement, other things in your book that are the core epigenetic signals. So guys, true age, Morgan Levine, totally worth it. Morgan, thank you for being on The Human Upgrade. It's fascinating to talk to a real anti-aging scientist going out there and starting a company, which lets you move a lot faster than you can in, a, in academia. So congratulations. Thank you, Dave. This is great. I, I want to say I didn't start the company, but I, I'm one of the early scientists in the company. Yeah, no, you're, you're yeah. really, yeah, you, you, you moved over, but you're not a founder. Totally get in. And exactly. Also, Altos has received a lot of really positive press. It's one of the big new anti-aging uh, probable unicorns out there. So I think, uh, I think it's, it's the right time for the world to be investing in anti-aging. The thing I didn't say, and the thing that your research will do is um, it's a bit more philosophical, but we have a, an epidemic that no one talks about and we don't have our village elders anymore because they're all too tired or too Alzheimer's to be able to do what elders are supposed to do, which is to say, look, if you keep doing that, you're going to hit the post. So like, don't do that. And then some percentage of people, not me when I was 20, uh, but some percentage of people are wise enough to go, you know, I think I'm going to listen to that elder because I have respect for them. And then I'm going to make my life and the world much better as a result. So we need our wisdom so we don't do dumb stuff over and over. And I want there to be people 200 years old because they're going to know more than me. And then I could ask them questions, right? And I still cultivate um, friends older than me, substantial older than me. Uh, and I plan to do that as long as there are people older than me um, because that's how you learn from experience. And then you cultivate friends younger than you because that's how you get energy and new perspectives. And, and that's your job, whether you're 20 or whether you're 100 to do both of those. And your research is actually going to make it so we have more super healthy, um, super energetic people with lots of wisdom. Like, that's what we need. And that's what I want yeah. to be on the show. I just want to say thanks because yeah. that's the world you're creating, whether you've thought about it that way or not. Yep. No, absolutely. I, I hope we'll work hard and hope we can do it. Okay. Yeah. Have a wonderful day, Morgan. Thanks. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Dave Asprey.
A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.